Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Hey, critics. Glad that you have joined me again this week. Thank you very much for inviting me into your home or your life. Uh, I hope that my answers and information here can give you some distraction, some entertainment, some uh, information, and perhaps uh, inform future action uh, given the interesting and agitated and in some ways pretty disturbing times that we're living in right now. So hopefully things will be getting better before they, um, but you know, we got, we, we're, we're in some turbulent times right now. So anyway, let's not dwell on that. Let's go ahead and get to your questions uh, because we got some pretty interesting and good ones and relevant to, of course, what is happening now. Here we go. Eugene Simopoulos. My question has to do with what Scientologists do when they become emotionally distressed, angry, down, hopeless, etc., in the face of everyday normal human challenges of life. For example, in the monotheistic religions like Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, practitioners will pray to a higher power for guidance, support, etc., or consult with a pastor slash priest. What is the usual Scientologist response? Do they immediately contact their auditor and go to their local org? Read LRH. Are there more immediate interventions they employ? I don't believe they're totally incapable of emotions, despite their attempts to bury their humanity with TRs, auditing, and other processes. Great question, Eugene, and thank you very much for asking me this. And absolutely, Scientologists experience the same full range of emotions as anybody else. Um, the problem is that they try to suppress a lot of those emotions, and they are experiencing them, but then they are suppressing them, and that is where a lot of these, you know, a lot of psychological damage can come when you are doing this on a chronic, long-term basis. You can um, cause yourself some real chemical problems uh, over years of doing this kind of thing. I'm not suggesting in any way that, you know, if you, uh, you know, are having a bad day and you're trying to keep it to yourself, that there's something psychologically wrong with that. There isn't. But over a long, long term of not being able to express yourself or express how you feel, that is where there can be problems. Okay, so I just wanted to clarify that. Um, but you had just a great, great question here. So let's go ahead and go over some things that Scientologists do. Now, you will find a wide range of responses here. It is not any one thing or even two things. But some of the things you mentioned in your question are definitely what Scientologists do. There are Scientologists who are very addicted to the auditing process or the euphoria or fervor that they can feel as a result of the auditing process. And so they try to go get a session. I knew a lady back in Santa Barbara who every time she had the slightest little dip in her day, I need to go talk to an auditor. And she would go rush into the org and she would get on the e-meter and she would try to tell somebody what was going on with her. And she, you know, every every little frowny face deserved a, was basically a 10 alarm fire for her because she wanted to be in this constant state of blissful euphoria. Right. And that's not a very realistic expectation. So she was, you know, troubled and quickly ran out of money as she was going in and out of sessions trying to, you know, get this sorted out. Um, that was a rather unique, extreme example. I didn't see a lot of people acting that way in Scientology, but they were there. You also have advices like, what would Ron do? This is a question that Scientologists will ask themselves all the time. When faced with a dilemma or a problem or a situation, and they're like, well, I don't know what to do here. Well, shoot, let me think. What would Ron Hubbard do right now? And within their knowledge of Hubbard's policies and issues and writings and, and uh, you know, whatever, their, their think about him, that's how they'll approach the problem is how they think he would approach it. This is one of those things where, again, you know, one or two times or, you know, as a as a sort of general sort of way of approaching life, there certainly isn't anything wrong with trying to look at things from a different perspective. But <laughs> as we've gone over in Scientology, you are actually having personality change over time because of the indoctrination and the viewpoint changes and demands that are made on you by the social pressures 
you are going to change your views, and those views will change and skew more in the direction of L. Ron Hubbard's views, because that's the single source of most of the indoctrination. So uh, your personality will shift and change over time, and so you'll be actually acting like L. Ron Hubbard would act in circumstances that previously you never would have acted that way, right? That's one of those bad influences that can happen in these cultic groups. So uh, again, it's a matter of volume or extreme uh, extremism, right, of that. So uh, that's another way, another coping mechanism that they'll use, though. Remember that Scientology also has been marketing itself for the last 20 years as a toolkit for life, a, a bunch of practical solutions that you can utilize in order to solve the problems of your life. And some of those solutions have limited degrees of workability in certain circumstances. For example, you know, when in doubt, communicate. That's a, that's a Scientology maxim, and it's not a bad one. If you run into problems with somebody in an interpersonal relationship conflict kind of situation, generally hashing it out is a good idea. Not under every circumstance, not when the person's an abuser. Uh, that's where you got to get some distance between you, for example. But when you're dealing with the run-of-the-mill average problems of life, you're not dealing with abusers. So communication guidance and, and help with that is a good thing. And people in Scientology generally will approach things from a maybe overly confrontational point of view, actually. But I, you know, though having grown up in that environment and, and now dealing with the real world and the passive aggressiveness of it and the fact that people won't often confront you or be honest with you about things— you know, there's some there's a there's a cost benefit ratio to be you know run on. Is it a good idea to talk to people about things when you're upset, or isn't it? Well, it depends on the person and the situation, but you get where I'm going with that. So that is a way that Scientologists will sometimes deal with things: is they'll just uh, try to tackle the source of the problem as they see it and try to hash it out with communication. And like I said, sometimes that works, and sometimes it's only makes things worse. So it depends. Um, as far as going into their orgs, there are other services or other uh, avenues of help within an, or within a Scientology organization. You have an ethics officer who is not only there to abuse you and demand money out of you for all of your sins that you've confessed in sessions, but ethics officers do sometimes help people. And I did many, many, many ethics cycles, as they were called. Uh, you know, you sit down and you do an ethics cycle. We're going to have this conversation. We're going to take Hubbard's ethics technology. We're going to take his methods of, you know, his little formulas of what condition are you in and and is it the greatest good for the greatest number and, you know, running these kind of calculations and sort of evaluating your moral stances on things. You know, and if it's a moral issue you're having a problem with or some moral conundrum, then an ethics officer can help sort it out using the Scientology policies. Sometimes that's beneficial. Sometimes it is not. Again, context-specific. More often than not, though, it's always going to lean in the direction of benefits to the church, almost exclusively. And that's, again, where you get that sort of cultic flavor to all of this. So, um, But accidentally, you know, despite that, despite Scientology, ethics officers sometimes will actually give material or, or useful assistance to uh, church parishioners who are having troubles. Another person that they will see who is more likely to be helpful is the chaplain. And the chaplain is sort of the port of last call, as Hubbard describes it in Scientology orgs. It's a person you can go see who's not supposed to be judgmental, who is supposed to really just sit there and listen and understand and, and really be, if anybody's supposed to be on your side, it's the chaplain. And, um, and sometimes, again, that is a, it's a bit of a coin toss as to what's going to happen, because at the end of the day— as much as the chaplain might be on your side, it can be a little bit of one of those human resources kind of issues, right? In, in other words, in corporations, there's the view that human resources is there to help employees, but there's also the very you know cynical view that, that human resources exists only to service the company, and they are only there to protect the organization itself, and they're really only pretending to be interested in you. I can't speak to whether that is or isn't broadly true across corporate America, but that's, you know, what I've heard and been told. So uh, this, in a similar way, the chaplain in a church of Scientology 
might put on a front, you know, I can tell you that they will put on a front of caring and listening, and, and they really do care, and they really will listen, but when it comes time to figure out what to do, if if what needs to be done is in any way going to negatively impact the, the, the local church or Scientology in general, then the chaplain's advice is going to be directed, you know, to direct you away from that behavior or activity. They don't, you know, they are Scientologists first, uh, chaplain second, you know, friend third sort of thing in terms of their priorities. So, uh, but you do have these resources and, uh, and it's not even something that you're going to have to pay for if you're going to go see the chaplain. That's just a, a conversation or somebody who can help you. The bigger problem in most Scientology churches is they don't have chaplains. There are, they, there are most churches don't have a single posted person whose job is just to be the chaplain. And so you'll end up talking to some executive who's holding that function as part of their job. It's called holding from, from above. And because um, on the organizational chart, you know, they're above that post. So they're responsible for every function below them. So... Um, so those are the kind of things they'll do. Now, also growing up as a Scientologist and a, you know, as a second generation member, when there were conflicts or issues at home, sometimes we were like with my brother, we were made to sit down and do TRs. And we would just as kids, we'd have to sit and stare at each other for a while, right? And and of course it's equivalent to kind of a timeout, sort of an enforced, you know, be nice to your brother sort of thing. Um but, you know, forcing you to sit there and look at each other for a while after, you know, after a while, the anger dies down and, you know, you, you kind of chill out. So uh, so that would happen sometimes or we would consult Hubbard writings. I was uh, experiencing bullying as a, a kid in school and I was advised to with Hubbard references. Uh, there was this story that the ethics officer of the mission, this is in Pasadena when I was growing up. The ethics officer of the mission sat me down and went over this Hubbard reference about how he had been, uh, how he had encountered bullies growing up in Nebraska or Montana or wherever. And uh, he had climbed up on top of a fence one by one and, 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 and tackled and beaten up these kids, this gang of kids who were terrorizing the neighborhood, one by one, starting with the smallest one and working his way up is how Hubbard claimed he he dealt with this group. And after the first two, after he had beaten up the first two kids, then the rest of them ran every time he showed up. Probably total nonsense, probably a tall tale, but that's the kind of, um, that's the way I was advised to deal with bullying. <laughs> and I wasn't a fighter in school at all. So that advice didn't really work out for me so well. But that was what I was advised to do. Anyway, so um, so there you go. Cyprian Ivanov. In reference to the recent events at the Capitol, it seems like the broader Trump base was attracted to him for his self-confidence, broad statements, and his image of being high energy, in part probably projected by his repeating redundant words instead of pausing to think. Of the people who showed up to his rallies recently, they were probably among those who most clung to him as a savior rather than as a regular politician. Something was already unhealthy with the thinking of the people who showed up. Somehow they weren't treating politics as a complicated series of long and short-term calculations and negotiations. Somehow they reduced it to individual personalities. That is a perspective that seems rather strange to some observers. You had previously mentioned that LRH had presented all politics as being controlled by less than 12 men. There seems to be some weird habit of treating the massive scale and complexity of society as if it was merely the will of an individual instead of a diffuse network where a handful of people serve as connecting nodes for information streams. Could you comment on this? Thanks for the question, Cyprian. And of course, I'm going to first say in reference to your question that um, it's surprising to you that people are treating politics not as a complicated series of negotiations or short and long-term calculations. Well, yeah, um, a lot, a lot, a lot of people don't think about politics that way. They personalize it and they bring it down to their own interests and influences and their own needs and wants. And if a politician is saying the things that they need to hear in order for them to feel reassured that this person is fighting for them and their needs, 
then this is a good politician or a good person. And if they are not, or if they represent the opposite of my moral values or my worldview, then they are bad people. They're bad politicians. What we're seeing here more broadly, though, when you refer to this, you know, this idea of how this weird habit of treating the massive scale and complexity of society as the will of an individual, what you're, excuse me, what you're referring to here, I believe, is the fundamental attribution error. And this is a really, really bedrock important principle. In fact, it is, in some ways of thinking, it is the bedrock of social psychology itself. Um, so let me go over it a little bit because it, is, it deserves a little bit of attention. Um, the fundamental attribution error, I'm reading here from Wikipedia just to give a quick uh, idea of it, is the tendency for people to underemphasize situational explanations for an individual's observed behavior and overemphasize dispositional or personality based explanations for their behavior, okay? In other words, they will overemphasize the individual involved and they will, and the motivations and intentions of that individual will be assumed rather than looking at the situational factors behind why somebody might act the way that they do. This is something that we see across the boards, okay? This is not partisan, this is not political even. Fundamental attribution error is something that occurs to all of us all the time, all day long. And it is sort of the immediate leap that we all make to personalize an error or problem or situation to the person. Okay, and the classic example, which I'll repeat here again, I think I've said it before, is the um, traffic. Okay, it's a simple, it's a simple explanation of this is... You know, you cut, you, you, I'm driving along in traffic. I get cut off, okay, by, by Joe. Joe cuts me off rudely, you know, right in my way. I have to break. I almost have an accident. I'm very upset. I, of course, immediately believe that Joe is an asshole. He's a bad driver. He's a dick. He's, he meant to do that. Or I could think of any number of things that would implicate Joe personally as a bad, evil human being for cutting me off in traffic. And I would assume that I was right about those things because within my knowledge and experience of Joe, some jerk that I've never seen who just cuts me off in traffic, you know, I have to think, well, why would this person do this? Well, it's because he's a self-centered prick. That's why, right? He clearly isn't thinking about anybody else but himself. And what a selfish driver. And, you know, and, and this is why road rage happens. And look at this. And, you know, people should be, you know, people need to learn how to drive and, you know, these kinds of things, okay? It could well be right, that the actual objective truth is that Joe cut me off because he's got a pregnant wife in the back of his car who's about to drop a kid. And he is racing to the hospital because 15 minutes ago, his wife was fine and there wasn't an issue. And suddenly she's having a baby, right? And here we go. And he has to get her to the hospital and I'm in the way. And I'm driving along and I'm not particularly paying a lot of attention to what's going on around me. My situational awareness is a little low at that moment. Here comes this guy barreling out of nowhere, cuts me off. Well, he's probably thinking, I got to get my wife to the hospital right now. Look at all these jerks in my way. Look at all these stupid drivers, slow drivers, all these people who don't know how to drive. Can't they pay attention? Don't they see what's happening? And he's going to commit the fundamental attribution error on every one of these drivers that he's running into. It's human nature. It's just what we do. But the truth of the matter is that if you could see the larger picture, this is what we call perspective, right? Proportionality. This is what is missing in a lot of the reporting that we get on news media. It's not a matter of they're telling us false things. It's so, it, that does happen. No question about it. But where the information's true or factual, it's skewed by perspective shift or by by proportionality. It's not it's not given in a in, in a in a in a in a sense in comparison or ratio to other information, which would give you, you know, which would make you realize that this is not you know the screaming you know fire emergency that they try, you know try to report every single story as. So the fundamental attribution error is a big deal, 
And um, when it comes to religion and politics, which are the two, as far as I can tell, the two most contentious, uh, you know, difficult topics, uh, because they are steeped in subjective belief and subjective understandings rather than objective facts, um, you're going to get a whole lot of these fundamental attribution errors happening. Okay, so to get to, you know, to bring this back around to your question, you know, the, this weird habit of treating the massive scale and complexity of society as it was as if it was merely the will of an individual is not a weird habit. It's a normal process of the brain in an effort to try to bring the complexity of situations that are actually mostly beyond most of our ability to deal with on a minute-to-minute, day-to-day, you know, sort of hour-to-hour basis, we don't have a lot of processing power to hold lots and lots of ideas in our head at once. We have to categorize and we have to simplify. We've got to be able to make the world make sense in a fairly simple way. And um, yes, we can deal with intense complex, you know, intensely complex things like quantum physics formulas or chemistry formulas or astrophysics things or, you know, some really complicated stuff. But notice the people who do that and the people who are capable of that kind of thinking and what it takes and the years and years of discipline that it takes to, to train your mind to be able to think that way. You know, that's not for everybody. Your, your regular, ordinary, average Joe person, you know, isn't doing that for a reason. It's because they either don't want to or don't have the ability to or don't have the time or resources to. So what the brain does instead is it goes, hey, we need to simplify things. And this is an oversimplification. It's a logical fallacy. But it's not, I'm, I'm only trying to point out that it's not weird. It's not an oddball, strange behavior that people do this. It's how you survive. Otherwise, you'd have to deal with the intense complexity of national, you know, as well as state and local level politics every time you tried to, you know, consider any issue or any circumstance or any position. It's a lot easier to just go, okay, well, I'm going to put all my thinking and beings into an individual who I can understand, who personifies or symbolizes for me the values I, you know, that I want to see reflected in the political sphere. And that's why we have politicians and that's why we have political platforms and that's why we invest so heavily, even emotionally, into these individuals. And we and and it and it, it, it makes itself open to or susceptible to cults of personality by, by its nature. It's just the it's just the process. It's the way that this stuff rolls out and how we how we interact with it. So that's what I can say most basically to address your question, Cyprian. I hope that that helps answer the question. It doesn't make it any easier to deal with any of these fundamental attribution errors. But at least understanding them, you can see that what's going on is that people are doing the very natural thing of, of personifying their problems and simplifying them down so that they can understand them and they can talk about them and they can deal with them and think about them. Um, in a way that is that is energy efficient for the brain and is simple enough and and symbolically easy enough that they um, that it doesn't that's not a strain you know um, we have to think that way we, that's just it's just how 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 we are so anyway um, you know, and and by that I mean we have to think in terms of simplifying things I don't mean we have to think with logical fallacies with training with discipline you can overcome it. But your instinct is always going to be to go in that direction. And that's why critical thinking is a skill set that you have to learn and not just something you naturally have or do. Laurent Sauclair. In one of your recent Q&As, you mentioned how strictly Sea Org members are taught how to clean. As I was cleaning my home, I thought of how triggering it might be for an ex-Sea Org member to do things as banal as cleaning. Was that the case for you? Or were there any other everyday life things that were actually hard for you to do or even triggering you after you left? Hey, thanks for the question. I'll treat this one a little lightly because, you know, it's a it's a, a cleaning. Actually, I'm, I'm kind of big on cleaning. I like cleaning. I mean, you wouldn't necessarily 
hell from here. But um, but my wife is uh, is someone who has definitely commented that I am a cleaner, <laughs> and um, and I learned it, of course, in the Sea Org, and I resisted it. I was not grow growing up. I was not a natural cleaner buff, germaphobe, anything like that. I was a messy kid, and my room was never really particularly well. I would go back and forth. I was a little bipolar on it, actually. But I didn't really, I wasn't really big on cleaning. It was always something that had to be enforced. In the Sea Org, it's enforced so often, so heavily on a daily basis that it just becomes habit. Kind of like the military, when you terms of how, you know, how ex-military will make their beds and stuff, I think. You'll find, I, th I, I believe you'll find a whole lot of them will have pretty neat beds for quite a while after they come out. Because it's just muscle memory and habit. Excuse me. And that's how I am, but not at all. I mean, my apartment right now is not at sea or cleaning standards. I would fail any white glove examination. So it's not like I'm still operating at the same level as I was when I was in the Sea Org as far as cleaning goes. Um, I'm only going on about this because it's not, you know, a, a trigger thing for me at all uh, as far as cleaning goes. I, I, I think sanitation is important. So, um, so in way, that's one of the sort of, you know, uh, all the, all the cleaning kind of balanced out my disorganization and, uh, and messiness, uh, for me personally. Now that all being said, yes, in a more general sense, that kind of thing can absolutely be triggering for people. And rather than cleaning, the kind of thing that was triggering for me had to do with food. Uh, for a very, very long time, food was a big, big button for me coming out of Scientology and the Sea Org. Because we, um, you know, I got to be off base a lot in the, in the later years of the Sea Org, but that was after three years of the RPF and, uh, what, eight years before that of, of Sea Org nonsense and a lot of really shitty, shitty food especially breakfasts. Breakfasts were pretty much ruined for me in the Sea Org, uh, almost uniformly, except for the Sunday meals, where we actually got some, you know, some pancakes or some French toast every now and again. Uh, runny, cold eggs was the, was the usual sort of breakfast, unless you could get there right when they were bringing the pans of eggs up from uh, the galley. And that really kind of ruined uh, eggs and food for me for a long, long time. Um, not just the breakfast, though, the other food, too, to the point where uh, for years, I mean, this is going to sound silly. I, I feel it's silly looking back on it. But at the same time, it was it was real. I mean, this is my life. I daydreamed about food. I used to daydream about steak dinners. And now I can have steak anytime I want. And I do. And I make my and I know how to make it. And I'm quite good at it. I love cooking and especially I love cooking meat. And, um, but this was, this is the fulfillment of all these daydreams I used to have as a Sea Org member where I would literally be, you know, having to eat my cold eggs or reheat them in the microwave or whatever, or spend my valuable $20 on some snackage out of the canteen because that was the only way I could have any sustenance. You know, this went on for years. This is not some like, you know, walk in the park sort of thing. And so I... So food kind of became the symbol for me of the good life. I, you know, I used, to, I used to think, how could these rich people, how could these, how could these people outside in the real world ever be upset? Look at the food they get to eat. I, I, like I said, I know that sounds ridiculous. And it, even to my ears right now, it sounds a little ridiculous, but that's the way I used to think, is I was so deprived of even the most like basic pleasantries of life, that those were the subjects of my daydreams and my fantasies. You know? <laughs> and that was, and so, so when I got out of the Sea Org and I got to finally just eat whatever the hell I wanted, whenever the hell I wanted, if I could just go buy it, right? Ha, it was just big heaven. It was wonderful. And of course, I've since learned to cook and, and spent a lot more time on that and had a great time with it. So, um, yeah, so that was hard. That was a hard thing uh, to experience in and then the freedom of, of, of realizing that I didn't have to live that way anymore and stuff. That was kind of fun. Um, the other thing that was triggering for me after leaving the Sea Org, and this is, again, this is real. These are small things, okay? But 
um, sometimes it's the little things, uh, was wearing a tie. I wore a tie every single day, seven days a week, for years. Years. Actually, I think, I think other than the break of the RPF, it was every day and a day off. If I had a day off or during the time that I was on the RPF, those were the only times when I wasn't, you know, uh, in uniform every single day wearing a shirt and tie. And, um, and the collars and the ties and everything. After I got out of the Sea Org, I think I've had a tie on once or twice. <laughs> Ties are still a little triggering for me. I, I know it's ridiculous, but it is true. I don't like them. That's why you see me wearing t-shirts all the time or collared open v-necks is because I don't like collared buttoned up shirts. I've got some. And uh, if I need to, you know, if I need to dress to impress, I can do that. Um, but, you know, I choose not to. And that's why you see me wear all these silly t-shirts. So there you go. Kevin Zay. Some high control groups turn you into a project, so to speak, to bring you back into the fold once you leave. I realize declared people are completely cut off from other Scientologists, but aside from that, are there other situations in which people who are still active Scientologists would contact you if you suddenly decided to become less active than you once were? Yes, absolutely. In fact, this is something I personally did for a couple of years in Scientology and spent a great deal of time, hundreds of hours, maybe thousands, over the time back, all the way going back to Santa Barbara, all through my time through um, at being a staff member there, and then in my later Sea Org years when I was going out knocking door to door on people's houses to get them back into the fold. This was absolutely uh, a, a whole job within the Sea Org, getting people called in, getting people recovered. It's, that's what they call it, recovering students or PCs or you know, pre-clears back to Scientology is a thing. And it's a documented um, methodical thing. I'm actually pulled out a policy letter from 1972 because I love reading from the scriptures and I thought you would appreciate this because it's the direct answer to your question. And this policy letter, 25 June 1972, is titled Recovering Students and PCs. And it says that um, there are, I'm not going to get into too much of the, I'm going to skip over some of the terminology. I'll just say that there are certain staff as well as ethics officers, it says here, who collide with students and PCs who have blown, parentheses, run away from the org. Uh, the recovery of these and getting them back on the line is of great interest to such personnel. In the first place, they muddy up a field. Okay, so in Scientology, you have the concept of an org and the field, the people who are being serviced by the org, the geographical area around it. That's its field, all the people who are in it. And if you have bad repute, if you have Scientologists who come in and then blow because of various reasons, which I'm about to lay out for you, then it creates bad repute in the field. It muddies up the field, as Hubbard would say. Um, and he says in the second place, and then this is all capitals now, every one of them can be gotten back. And that was the, that was the principle, the maxim that I operated on for years, is that every single one of these people who, who had ever evoked some interest, had, had, had said something and had signed up for services and had, had paid for stuff in Scientology, every single one of them could be gotten back. And if we couldn't get them back, it was our failure, not theirs. But it took crafty work and communication and, and figuring out what the reason was for them being gone. And Hubbard actually um, lays out here why they would leave. And he says, if you leave them about, then they spoil prospects, right? So it's no good. You're going to get bad repute. And he says, it's interesting. He says, because tech does work, tech being Scientology, right? Because tech does work, this is not hard to do. Down deep, they know that we do have the answer. It's an apparent refusal to apply it to them they're concerned about. Poor offbeat supervision Poorly trained auditors, lack of cramming in an org, get in your way. So you have to have a deep interest that tech in both courses and auditing is straight. 
right? So here he is saying, look, if they take off, it's on us. We got to deal with that. We didn't give them good service. But he says here, now, why would they take off? Okay, well, you have students and you have pre-clears. And he says the reasons for them are different. The reasons why a student will take off out of a class is different from why a pre-clear would leave while he's getting auditing. Um, and here are the five main blow reasons. Here we go. One, misunderstood words or no materials. Okay, you show up to class, you start studying, they don't have the materials that you need, <laughs> screw this place, and you're out of there. Or you show up for class, you start studying, you're reading along, and you don't understand it, and you're going by words you don't understand, and it doesn't make sense to you, <laughs> you're gone. So those are, the, those are the first two reasons, and Hubbard says those are the biggest reasons. Two, no help or word clearing from the supervisors or no course supervisor at all. You're going in there to study, there's no soup, or they're not helping you. You need help? Hey, man, I, I got a question. I ain't got time for you right now. All right? That's going to piss people off. Another instance of why people will leave, interference from the supervisors that stopped them from getting on. Now, this is interesting one, and this is a difficult one, because Hubbard's always insisting, as I've gone over with you guys, that you have to have a supervisor, and he's got to be Johnny on the spot, to make sure that the, super, that the students are getting their materials. And if the student is studying, and he's yawning, or he's not looking good, or he doesn't look happy, the supervisor is supposed to come over and interfere with him and find out what's going on. But Hubbard says... You can take that, you can go overboard with that, and people will feel harassed, and they will take off, and they won't appreciate it. So you got to balance that. You're supposed to be careful about that kind of thing. However, I can tell you as a trained course supervisor who supervised thousands and thousands of hours of supervision in Scientology classrooms, that uh, in, you know too much interference is the order of the day. <laughs> that is the usual activity in Scientology. Uh, number four is personal out ethics resulting in a withhold. It's on you now. This is the blame the victim part. This is you took off because you have some ethics situation that you're not being honest about. And that does come up. It was a thing. And uh, that would be a reason I guess a person might take off. And finally, you have five. Reason number five, simply booted off for reasons best known to God or registrars, i.e. the salespeople. And Hubbard gives an example, like suddenly saying, you must now buy this service, thus violating the deliver what we promise rule. In other words, you could start a class and then get told, oh, didn't anybody tell you? You have to buy this and this and this and this too. You can't even do the class until you do this. And then the guy might go, oh, well, fuck you and take off. Okay, so you might have instances like that where basically a staff member just pisses the guy off and makes some unruly demand and, and, and then they go. And um, Hubbard says the interference and the boot-off reasons are the ones you'd least suspect. Both generate a lot of uh, what he calls human emotion and reaction. All right. In other words, a lot of upset. People, are, people get pretty pissed. So those are the five reasons why, according to L. Ron Hubbard, any student will blow. Now, obviously, there could be a panoply of other reasons why somebody would leave Scientology or take off or not continue services anymore. But these are the only reasons Scientology will accept. Excuse me. Okay. Now, the reason most PCs blow, pre-clears, leave auditing, okay, there's only four reasons. These are technical, though, so I'm only going to kind of gloss over these. One of them is called outlists, and that's a technical thing where somebody basically tells you what's wrong with you, and it doesn't make sense to you or indicate to you. And that's a process that goes on in auditing where you can be told the meter says your problem is blah or your thing is blah, and you might go, well, that's not true. And, and you might even only think it. Well, that's bullshit. And then you're like, well, this auditing sucks. I'm not doing this anymore. So that could be a reason. Another one is no auditing. You sign up for auditing, you pay for auditing, and then they don't deliver any auditing to you. And you show up and they're not there and there's no auditing happening. So you're like, well, screw this, and you take off and you don't come back anymore. Another one is invalidation of case or gains. You come out of an auditing session, in or out of session actually, it can happen either way, and you have some big win or you're happy and somebody comes along and goes, well, that's no big deal. That sucks, that's stupid. 
okay, you're out, you're done. You know, you're like, oh, I guess this auditing didn't work after all. I guess I won't do it anymore, you know? So you could have that. And finally, you could say there is told they'd attained it and hadn't. So this is an example where you're basically, Hubbard is saying, look, you, you, you attest someone and you tell someone, hey, you, you know, you've achieved the state of clear or you've gotten this level done, but the person kind of knows that they haven't. They feel like they haven't. They don't feel like they've really achieved that. And then they'll be like, ah, screw this. This is bullshit. And they won't come back. So those are your four reasons, according to Hubbard, of why somebody would quit auditing. Again, there could be many other reasons, but in Scientology, these are the only acceptable ones. And Hubbard advised that you could actually memorize these, which I did, and that you could run them off, sort of rattle them off with people when you talk to them. So the way that you would get them back is you would utilize these points and you would sort of assess it with them in conversation. And now this is what I would do with people is I would go to their homes or I would get them on the phone and I would say, hey, let's talk about, you know, what your Scientology experience. Let's talk about what you were doing and, and, and how was it going and what happened. And sometimes they would tell you and you could interpret one of these things in, in what they said, you know, and, and you could go, well, that was wrong. That shouldn't have happened. I, I'm really sorry. We, we really shouldn't have done that. I can't believe you paid for all this auditing and the auditor never showed up or they never scheduled you or the registrar told you you had to buy all this other auditing first or, you know, or the supervisor wasn't there to help you. That was ah, that was off the rails. I am so sorry about that. Let's get that fixed. Why don't you come in and let's let's sort this out? And this would be my general approach in trying to get somebody back into the fold. The other thing I would do, and I think I've talked about this before, is uh, in a coordination or with this is there's another policy letter Hubbard wrote where he talks about the power of the initial purpose or drive or intent to do a thing. Um, you know, you sign up for Scientology services because you're in a state of ruin. You want to change or improve some condition or circumstance or trauma in your life. And that's a very strong motivation. And they have convinced you now, and remember when they sign you up for stuff, they have convinced you that Scientology can help you with this. So that purpose or drive is still there. That, that's, what's, that's what impelled you to do Scientology in the first place. And you can go back in and you can remind people about that and get them to tell you about, well, what happened when you first signed up? What were you feeling? What were you trying to handle? What was it you wanted to deal with in Scientology? And they'll tell you if, you, you know, if you're in good, good communication with them. Ah, I was having all these problems with my family and, you know, wow. And are you still having problems with your family? Well, a little bit. Yeah, I got this and this. And, and then you go, then, then, then what you're doing is you're trying to draw that purpose out of them. That, 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 that failed purpose is what Hubbard calls it. It's a, it's a purpose or a drive that they had and they went forward and then they, it was like a rocket and then it petered out because they ran into these problems and, and barriers and they felt that they couldn't accomplish it. So it became a failed purpose. And what you do is you rehabilitate that failed purpose. You go, oh man, well, tell me about that. And you get them talking about it and you kind of trying to manipulate them back into that headspace of, of when they thought that purpose was accomplishable, when it was something they wanted and you, re you rekindle it. You resuscitate it, right, by talking about it and getting them to talk about it and talking about why it was a good thing and why it's still possible that it can happen. And this is how I would manipulate people to come back into the church so that we could re-traumatize them because basically that's what happened is they would come back in and maybe we would fix some things and then eventually something else would screw up because the nature of Scientology is what it is. It is a money-making scam, a destructive cult. So it does end up abusing and hurting people. So that was usually the, 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 the way that went or the way that that goes. And um, I hope that that gives you some idea of how this is dealt with in Scientology. David, do you know much about secret cameras and ideal orgs? I was thinking of going to visit an org in the UK during my next trip to England but I hear they have cameras all over the place and they have a huge database of SPs and can do facial recognition. I wouldn't really worry too much about that. If you're curious about Scientology and you want to know more about it, go into an org and find out. I mean, you know, they're not going to, there's no fangs and claws and anything like that. 
I do not endorse Scientology in any way. The only reason why I say that is because I want you guys to engage in critical thinking. And I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you what to do or not do when it comes to finding out about things. There are cameras in ideal orgs. There are security measures in place in ideal orgs, in all orgs. And there are office special affairs staff in almost all orgs, and they got cameras and video equipment, and they will use it if they think you're there to make trouble. But they don't take pictures of every single person who walks in the building. They don't do facial recognition on every single person. They're looking for troublemakers, but more importantly, they're looking for new members. And so they're not gonna, you know, they're gonna roll out the welcome mat if you walk in there, honestly asking them what's up and, 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 and exhibit curiosity and interest. So, um, you know, now don't give them your address, your, your actual name and address and phone number, not if you don't want to hear from them again, because once they have your information, your contact information, it's game over. They will pursue you till the end of your life. Um, that's just that's just the way I mean, I just I, I can't tell you how many emails I've had over the last many years, you know, begging me to tell them what's the secret to get off Scientology's mailing list. So, you know, so do yourself a favor and use, uh, you know, a, a fake troll account or a, uh, a sock account rather or um, or fake name or something. You know, don't go in there, make, you know, and then stumble around trying to make stuff up. Go in there prepared. Um, but but I'm not you know, I would never advise anybody to, to, to not go in there, but uh, be aware of the situation you're walking into and don't be naive. You know, and uh, that's about the best advice I can give for you on that. If you are going into a church of Scientology to make trouble, then they are going to get you on camera and they are going to figure out who you are if they can. They will follow you out. They will pursue you down the street. They will try to get a license plate number if you get into a car. Um, you know, they are active. They're very proactive in that. So, um, so I would expect that kind of behavior if you're trying to think about uh, inciting any trouble, and of course, I don't endorse that or push that or want that in any way. Um, so that's all I can say about that. Tony Huzar, does the Church of Scientology have a way for current members who are on the OT levels, a method to avoid implant stations when they drop their body? Otherwise, wouldn't they have to start totally over once again? Did you witness any credible evidence of OT spiritual abilities while you were a practicing Scientologist? It's an easy thing to claim, but a difficult phenomena to prove. Hey, Tony, thanks for the question here. Um, as far as avoiding implant stations, quite seriously, I'm going to tell you that the only time I ever heard any Scientologist, because there's no Hubbard advice that I ever read or saw about how to avoid them. And the only person I heard, um, the, you know, these Scientologist conversations that we would have over the years was somebody saying, yeah, you got to stay low to the ground. <laughs> You know, as a Phaeton, you, got, you don't want them sucking you up, right? So stay low to the ground. I mean, that was that was that was serious advice. <laughs> okay, so that's about as much as I ever heard that I can remember about that. As far as the credible evidence of OT spiritual abilities, let me share this with you because I thought you might find this kind of funny and, and cute too. Um, my mom and I, when I was growing up, we would play a game. My mom played this, I think, I think, she, I don't know if she called it the OT game or not. She might have. I, that, that comes to mind right now. But it was a, when we were washing the dishes, and this was when I was a young kid. This is seven, eight years old, uh, you know, young. And I would, I, would, I would dry the dishes. My mom would wash them in the sink. And we would play this game where we would look at each other and we would try to telepath to each other, basically, what we were thinking, what we were thinking about, what picture we had in our mind at that moment. And of course, you know, this is all just kind of guesswork and silliness, but uh, at least that's how I see it now. But at the time, my mom was quite, you know, hey, let's do this. And I used to think it was a really fun game. And it wasn't just a guessing game. It was a, there's a picture here and you can perceive it somehow. And I would try to you know, use my eyes or whatever, and she would look at me, and I would be looking at her, and and we would play this game. And sometimes I'd guess the right thing, of course, and sometimes not, and same with her. And this was just this, this thing that we would do. And for many years, growing up and following that, after even after I moved out of home is where this particularly became a thing for me, is 
I would find myself thinking, I, you know, doing my job, doing whatever I'm doing. And then, oh, I got to call my mom. I got to, you know, I just boom, I got to call my mom. Right. And, and I know I'm not alone in this. This is not any kind of like unique thing to me or Scientology, but I'm just telling you that the way I lived my life was I thought my mom, psychic connection. Right. And I would call my mom. I'd say, Hey, and she, the first thing out of her mouth, I was just thinking about you. I was just going to call you. I I was just thinking you should call me. Right? And so we would reinforce this idea that we had this psychic, tele, you know, telepathic kind of connection. And, um, and the funny thing is, of course, that, you know, our brains are attuned to remember the hits and forget the misses. And this is, this is what happens in, you know, with psychics all the time, right? Where they were so accurate even though they were really guessing and they were only accurate 4% of the time. But you remember that 4% bigger in your memory, in your brain, because it was accurate and it was the right answer. And all the times that they guessed and missed and didn't have the right answer, you are able to just kind of, you know, negate that and not think about it. And that's what I am, I'm pretty, I'm pretty positive that that's what's happened with me over the years, because I'm sure there are plenty of times where I thought I should call my mom. And then I did, and it had nothing to do with her thinking about that or had nothing to do with her thinking about me calling her or anything like that. But I would reinforce that belief in my head when I was a Scientologist that my mom and I had this OT psychic connection. And I would always strive to try to create that connection with other people. And, you know, that that we're so connected thing. Oh, we must have known each other in a past life. You often hear this in Scientology. Often people assume that this must be the reason why they feel that, they're, that they can connect with other Scientologists. So, um, so that's the kind of stuff that you hear or see about and uh, that, is, that is considered that I really honestly believed was OT phenomena in my own life and now can see as, uh, you know, really just kind of nonsense and wishful thinking. But anyway, there you go. Okay, everybody, I hope my answers this week were uh, useful, entertaining, informative, you know, helpful in some fashion to you guys. Maybe provide some clarity for some of what's going on right now. I hope you guys will check out my podcast with Jeff Hawkins this week. It is one of the most fun and interesting and Scientology-filled content I've put up in a long time. And Jeff and I had a really good time talking. And he actually changed my mind about something that I have talked about many times right here on the show. And I'm going to make you have to go watch the podcast to find out what that is. I'm not going to put a spoiler here. All right, guys, I will see you next week. Thanks for coming around. Bye-bye.